Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, after another week of isolation and uh, social distancing, I hope that you're managing to stay well, stay safe, stay sane and positive, um, despite these uncertain times in which we're living. But life is uncertain, isn't it? We know there's only one thing certain in life. We just don't know when that's gonna be. And if you were with us last weekend, you'll know that Jesus is alive today. That's great news and something to celebrate. Easter was a death and resurrection service, a celebration. And today we're going to continue with another in our series about men of the Bible. As the title implies, it's where we look at men in the Bible and see what lessons we can learn um, from their lives and their part in the Bible story. And the message isn't just for men, it is of course for women too. And one of the things this coronavirus is teaching us, or at least reminding us of, is that we all live under authority. When our government imposed new rules, social distancing, locked down the country, shut down our businesses, stopped us from traveling, we obeyed quite rightly because we recognized the authority that we live under. So this morning, we're going to look at two men involved in the events surrounding um, the last days of Jesus, specifically the faith of two centurions. They knew all about authority. And we read about the first of our centurions in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, which Chris read to us earlier. He encountered Jesus in Capernaum. It's a town in the region of Galilee. And in Luke chapter 4, we learn that it was here that Jesus taught the people and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. So we can take it this centurion had witnessed many healings that Jesus had delivered in his town. And he recognized authority when he saw it. And when he gave an order, he expected it to be obeyed immediately. He'd seen what Jesus could do, and he knew that if Jesus gave a command for healing, it would happen immediately. He recognized that Jesus worked for and with a higher authority. And he also recognized in his own life, ultimately, it was under the authority of Jesus. So when he asked Jesus to heal his servant, he demonstrated his faith and belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now let's get some perspective here on the significance of this coming from a centurion. The Roman army was the most feared lethal war machine in the ancient world. Its soldiers were disciplined and committed to the empire and to Caesar. They had developed brutal practices which they readily used in times of both war and peace. A centurion, you see, is an experienced Roman soldier who's been placed in command over a hundred of the world's best trained and most feared soldiers. 
he had to be at least 30 years of age and he had to be recommended by others of a higher rank. He probably enlisted when he was just 16 years of age. So by this time, he'd spent half his life in the military. And if he lasted the full 20 years of service, he was also entitled to a good pension. Many didn't, but the ones that did had that to look forward to. The ancient historian Polybius recorded that centurions were chosen for their command based on proven merit over years of military service and were known not only for their courage and prowess in battle, but also for their cunning, intelligence and strength of both body and mind. A centurion is a man much accustomed to violence, death and political assassinations. He was a professional killer who had likely long since learned to numb himself to the sufferings and the deaths of others, no matter who they were, why or how they died. And the centurion was a Gentile. In other words, he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't trained or learned in the ways or the words of their one true God. He had authority, but he was under authority. He could execute a soldier for dereliction of duty, but as a man under authority, he could have the same treatment meted out to himself. Now, when we consider the centurion who was at the crucifixion, clearly, at least for a time, his unit of soldiers were assigned to crucifixion duty in Jerusalem. Now, he was the captain or commanding officer in charge of keeping political order in Jerusalem and handling the prisoners right down to their execution. This centurion and his soldiers then were not only veterans of war, but veterans of crucifixion. Now, it was likely that these same soldiers under the command of this same centurion were the ones who earlier mocked Jesus, dressed him as a farcical king, beat him, whipped him to the very edge of death, spat on him, nailed him to the cross, mocked him there, gambled for his garments and challenged his person. Yet in the passage from Luke 23, again, which Chris read earlier, we read that after Jesus breathed his last, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. So this hard, tough man experienced in war, violence and crucifixion saw something different to all the other crucifixions he'd witnessed, organised or executed. He discovered that this one was profoundly different from and more important than any other. But what was it? Max Licardo says this, if it is true that a picture paints a thousand words, then there was a Roman centurion who got a dictionary full. All he did was see Jesus suffer. He never heard him preach or saw him heal or followed him through the crowds. He never witnessed him still the wind. He only witnessed the way that he died. But that was all it took 
to cause this weather-worn soldier to take a giant step in faith. And that says a lot, doesn't it? Jenny Rosania is a staff writer within Touch Ministries, and she explains it like this. This man, Jesus, was like none the centurion had ever seen. Stripped naked, whipped, bleeding, with a crown of thorns gouging his skull, he didn't fight as others did, nor did he beg or curse. Soldiers tried to steal his dignity, but couldn't. Even after they had cast lots for his cloak and coated his tongue, his dry tongue, with vinegar, this Galilean wasn't condemning and he never pleaded for mercy. In fact, this Galilean called Christ did something that tore at the centurion's stone-cold heart. He forgave. He forgave. In all the centurion's years of watching people die on crosses, Jesus was the only one who ever offered him mercy. Jesus forgave him. Even though he stood for everything that put Christ on that Roman cross, Jesus forgave him. So how did the centurion respond? From the moment this centurion first laid eyes on Jesus at the palace until the moment of Jesus' last breath on the cross, this soldier personally observed that this was no ordinary man and this was no ordinary crucifixion. It was no ordinary death. As a veteran of probably hundreds, maybe thousands of such events, he knew that this individual and this event was profoundly different and important. And the problem or test that comes with such an experience is that it requires a response from us all. The centurion too, privileged and powerful as he was, had a profound and life-impacting decision to make. How does he respond to this unique and amazing event? How does he respond to his own personal encounter with the crucified Christ? Now, he could have chosen to respond the way he had countless times before. He could block it out. He could bury it deep and do whatever it takes to forget about it. Or he could have privately shed a tear uh, over his role in the unjust death of this innocent and gentle man and then gone back to his normal life. Or he could have written this strange man off as the looniest of loons. Or he could have quit the Roman army and dedicated his life to following the example of Jesus' kindness in working to eradicate poverty and achieve world peace. In other words, he could have chosen to respond in much the same way as many of us do to this very day. But he didn't. He chose another, a better, a more meaningful and life-altering response instead. Let's look again at what Jenny Rosania had to say. It was true. Everything the centurion had heard about Jesus preaching, healing and miracles. It was all true. 
regardless of Caesar, regardless of the centurion's own fate, Jesus was the Messiah. In that moment, he could utter only one confession as recorded in Mark 15 and 39. Surely this was the Son of God. You see, to be mighty physically is one thing, but to be mighty in spirit is to recognise who Jesus is. And the centurion did. The centurion viewed criminals on crosses as you and I might look upon a convict on death row. Yet when he saw Jesus, he knew something was different. When he looked upon the Saviour, neither his past nor his situation mattered. He simply couldn't deny the truth. The word of this warrior was that he had seen the Saviour. He confessed that he had witnessed the Christ. 2,000 years later, it's still possible to look upon Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. So what will your confession be when you look upon the resurrected Son of God? And John MacArthur in his book, The Murder of Jesus, says this, but perhaps the most important miracle that occurred at the moment of Jesus' death was the conversion of the centurion charged with overseeing his crucifixion. As Christ's atoning work was brought to completion, its dramatic saving power was already at work in the lives of those who were physically closest to him. Until now, the uniqueness of Christ had made no apparent impact whatsoever on these soldiers. They were hardened men, and Jesus' passivity made no difference to the way they treated him. But Christ's death was unlike any crucifixion they'd ever witnessed. They heard him pray for his killers. They saw the noble way that he suffered. They heard when he cried out to his father. They experienced three full hours of supernatural darkness. And when that darkness was followed by an earthquake at the very moment of Christ's death, the soldiers could no longer ignore the fact that Christ was indeed the Son of God. You see, when the soldiers around the cross heard Jesus' exclamation and saw him die, and then immediately felt the earthquake, it suddenly became all too clear to them that they had crucified the Son of God. They were stricken with terror. And it wasn't merely the earthquake that they were afraid of. They were terrified by the sudden realisation that Jesus was innocent. And not merely innocent, but he was precisely who he claimed to be. They had killed the Son of God. The centurion remembered the indictment of the Sanhedrin where they said he made himself the son of God. And having witnessed Jesus' death up close from beginning to end, he rendered his own verdict on the matter. Truly, this was the son of God. Those words were evidently a true expression of faith. So we can say that the centurion and his soldiers were evidently the first converts to Christ after his crucifixion. 
coming to faith at precisely the moment that he expired. So even before there was any resurrection and proof of Jesus' power of life and death, the centurion had seen enough in Jesus' person, his character, even in his suffering to know that this man was the God-man, saviour of the world, who had claimed ultimate victory over sin through his just and indisputable payment on the cross. So I guess the question for us this morning is what will your response be? None of us here were physically present at Jesus' crucifixion, nor did we experience the event as this centurion did. However, through God's word and spirit, each and every one of us has been presented with an intimate, personal experience of Christ crucified. Like that centurion that day over 2,000 years ago, each of us today faces the same all-important question. How will you respond to your encounter with the crucified Christ? Will you simply ignore it? Will you forget it? Drown it away through further separation from and rebellion against God and his truth? Will you simply be repelled by the injustice and the sadness of it all? Or will you also allow your spirit to be compelled to respond in a way much more significant, much more meaningful, much more life-changing and even eternal? Will you simply shake your head and maybe shed a tear about the cross? Or will you embrace the salvation Jesus has brought you, not only to celebrate, but to marvel at and to personally live and benefit in his resurrection? The decision, my friends, is yours and your response must be real. You can't fool God. We can fool ourselves at times. But our response to him must be real. And then so will the results be. One way or the other. So to everyone I say, no matter how self-reliant we think we are, and to the men in particular, no matter how tough we think we are, we have to recognise the authority of the one above us, who created us, who loves us and wants the best for us if we will only submit to his authority. If we do, then our lives will be changed. Just as Jesus forgave then, he can forgive now. And let's be honest with ourselves and with God and be sincere with him. And remember, the more you put into a relationship, the more you get out of it. So in this time of lockdown, Spend some time in the Word of God. Think about what is really important in life. Think about these centurions. Put yourself in their position and decide how you will respond. Think about what you'll leave behind as your legacy and think about the fragility of life and what comes after. 
after we depart this mortal body. Jesus offers hope for now and forevermore. Amen. And if you remember nothing else from this message this morning, remember the two key words, forgiveness and authority. They're both in Jesus. So until next time, stay safe and God bless.